Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of M's Drive-In. I'm your host Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema, with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Today's episode is all about the intense collaborations between John Cassavetes and Jenna Rowlings. I hope you all enjoy, and let's get right to it. First up, we have John Cassavetes directing style. According to the article, six filmmaking tips from John Cassavetes from Landon Palmer for FilmSchoolRejects.com. The article states, the first rule is improvisational filmmaking is quote-unquote like jazz. When we think of improvisation, it's not necessarily a free form of expression, but rather it's this idea of playing around with the structure of what the art itself entails. Much of Cassavetti's work does look like a free-for-all due to a lot of the unconventional scripts that he wrote, but he did use a great significant amount of spontaneity that comes from starting out with the deep story structure. His ability to be able to work with unconventional scripts allowed for a more explorative process in his work, and he had a lot of freedom to play around with what was given to him. The second rule is, don't make good films, make free films. Cassavetes was a big believer in making films for the sake of expressing what needs to be said, rather than making films just so they can earn the next dollar. But that being said, it doesn't really matter if the film is good or how much money the film makes. What matters the most is filmmakers that are able to take risks in order to tell the types of stories that they want to tell. And in a lot of ways, that is the beauty of cinema. The art of making movies doesn't expand or flourish if artists aren't willing to take chances. The art itself is really in the risks that storytellers are willing to make in order to put their experiences and their heart out onto the line in order for wider audiences to really appreciate what a storyteller has to say or be able to relate to what a storyteller has to say in a vast majority of different ways. The third rule is understand the relationship between age and self-knowledge. Many of Cassavetti's films focus on the theme of aging, and with that being said, a lot of his films did adapt to his particular shift in perspective of life as he got older. I think what audiences can appreciate most about Cassavetti's is that he was always unapologetically himself. He wasn't afraid to confront the struggles of morality because he knew that that's where the truth lied in a lot of the stories that he wanted to tell. And I think that was a really huge reason as to why he was so put off by mainstream films. Because audiences were gravitating towards films that didn't speak a kind of truth anymore and didn't really dig deep enough into the human condition the way that he felt that films should. And he really thrived off of that authentic energy that came from a lot of vulnerability that he can only tell through film. The fourth rule is, I don't care if it's a success. Cassavetes was one of the first directors to dive headfirst into independent cinema. He was a person that never wanted to conform to the expectations of the studio system, and he made what he wanted on his terms for the sake of expressing himself as an artist rather than pleasing producers or pleasing a certain audience or pleasing the system itself. Rule number five is money kills creatively. 
Cassavetes was a big believer in anti-commercial cinema, which is where filmmakers make films they won't make money off of. It's this overall concept of how films don't have to be sold to the public to be good. A lot of these underground low-key stories can be just as good, if not better, than commercial and mainstream cinema. The final rule is filmmaking resists planning. Overplanning calls for a lack of interpersonal connection within the film. If we go back to this overall concept of how films represent life, life doesn't always go as planned. And if movies are supposed to be a reflection of that, then why should they be planned? So in a lot of ways, it is better to approach the structure of a story while still being open to exploring the changes that can arise in the process of storytelling. The first movie we are going to talk about today is A Woman Under the Influence. This movie was written and directed by John Cassavetes and is about a wife and mother named Mabel who is played by Jenna Rowlings, who is loved by her husband Nick, played by Peter Falk, but her mental illness places a strain on their marriage. The themes of this film are marriage and family dynamic, social interactions, and mental health. According to the article, A Woman Under the Influence Wore at Home, written by Kent Jones for the current magazine for the Criterion Channel, the article states, The first movement of A Woman Under the Influence takes us up through Mabel's commitment, and the second movement is devoted to her disastrous homecoming six months later. Within these movements, different forces come into play. First and foremost, of course, there is Mabel herself. She is the magnet, the center, of whom everyone is demanding what seems like the simplest thing in the world, but what is finally impossible. Just be yourself. There's Nick who clings for dear life to his image of happiness. It's an image based on the memories of a carefree past with his wife, probably before the arrival of children, and it blinds him to the difficulties of the present. This quote leads us into our first theme of marriage and family dynamics. Nick is the type of person that will do anything to obtain this perfect image of happiness that he quickly lashes out at anything or anyone that seems out of the ordinary. On the other hand, Mabel feels like she is almost a disappointment to her husband because she can't be quote-unquote normal. Nick is the one that is constantly trying to maintain the balance of whatever normalcy he wants, but that normalcy never lasts. In a lot of ways, staying in the present moment does represent painful situations for Nick because he loves Mabel, but he really doesn't know how to help her. And Nick vents out a lot of these frustrations in destructive ways, which creates an overall unstable home life for Mabel and their children. An example of this is when Mabel and Nick have dinner with Nick's co-workers. Mabel makes an effort to introduce herself and wants to get to know all of Nick's friends. She becomes very enthusiastic and overly friendly to the point of asking each and every one of them questions and getting them to sing and dance and just overall trying to maintain this space of happiness because that's what her husband wants and she wants to make her husband happy. On the other hand, Nick doesn't want this situation to escalate or get out of control. And because of that, he lashes out. And Mabel automatically feels guilty. And we get an idea as an audience very quickly that it's very hard for Mabel to fit in to someone else's perspective of what they feel is normal. And in this case, Nick's idea of normalcy can become very scattered because you never know when he's going to lash out. 
Another example is when Mabel picks her children up from school. She tells them that she quote-unquote never made anything in her life except I made you guys. Which means she's basically telling her children that they are the only important beings that she has ever created or done in her life. Nothing else in her life really has meaning except for her kids. And she goes on to ask her kids if they think that they know her as their mother or if they think that they know her as dopey or mean. And in a lot of ways, she really wants to know if they recognize that their mother isn't normal or isn't like everybody else. But her kids are very reassuring of her and they tell her that she's smart and she's pretty. But they do recognize at times that she gets nervous. But that nervous energy is what is normal for them. And they don't really imply that that is anything out of the ordinary because that's just the way that they assume that their mom is. And they like that about their mom in a lot of ways. What I like about that scene in particular is that it shows how accepting children can be. A lot of times children are just able to go with the flow with whatever they see. And with that being said, when we're children and we see our parents behave in a certain way, that is what we are used to. We are used to seeing our parents in that specific light and we assume that that's what works for our environment because our parents are our example. And in this case, Mabel's kids do notice that she gets nervous and she does get overexcited in a lot of ways, but that is what works for them. The article continues to state, there's the house itself, also a force, the foyer with the bench, the ground floor bedroom with the sliding doors opening onto the living room, the dining room with the long table, the backyard, and most dramatically of all, the staircase. Like many great directors before him, Cassavetes understood that the staircase was a necessary focal point of domestic drama, with its geography of open and closed spaces, places from which to observe and places in which you're left exposed, places to congregate and places to be alone, the house becomes a theater of battle, as houses often do, even the ones with loving families inside. This quote leads us into the theme of social interactions. Many of the interactions that we see Nick and Mabel have throughout the film are rooted in observation of human activity. If we're coming from a behavioral standpoint, Mabel is somebody that is consistently addressing her surroundings and trying to insert her place in whatever everyone else expects of her because she wants to be integrated into that society and she wants to appear like she has it all together like everybody else does. An example of this is when one of her neighbors brings his kids over for Mabel to watch. Mabel encourages him to stay and when he says that he can't, Mabel immediately calls him out, saying that he's uncomfortable. And in a lot of ways, we see that she is somewhat self-aware that her mind isn't on the straight and narrow, and that she can be very impulsive and very in-your-face with the way that she comes across to people. But at the same time, she still wants to create a good time and a good environment for the kids. She goes up and sets up a tea party, and she sets up a dress up, and she begins to kind of dance around and try to loosen up the vibe. But it's very clear that she's in her own little world, and she's just bringing everyone else in on for the ride. When they're in the backyard together, Mabel feels more free to be a fun and somewhat creative presence for the kids. And when Nick calls in to check on her, that immediately breaks the mood. When she goes back into the house to pick up the phone, that represents for her the reality of how she is living. It's very chaotic. It's very unstructured to everyone else. 
but that chaos and that lack of structure is what's normal for her. She makes a lot of her own intricacies work for herself. And in a lot of ways, she is caught in between no one else really understanding what she is experiencing aside from her children. The article continues to state, Along with Raging Bull, made by Cassavetti's old friend Martin Scorsese, A Woman Under the Influence is the toughest of all great American films. It takes conflicts and dynamics that we all know, all of us, and writes them uncomfortably large. Like the Scorsese film, it doesn't reach expressive peaks. Both films begin at peak expressive levels and stay there, as much as it hits emotional pressure points. This quote leads us into the theme of mental health. Mabel's health does reach a height that even Nick can't control, and he decides to send her away. And this time, when she is away from her kids getting help, Nick tries to maintain a stable life for his children, but in his attempt to be able to maintain this stability, we can see him slowly falling through the cracks. And that's where we see these emotional pressure points come into form. They are represented through Nick's control freak kind of energy. It gets to the point where if his kids aren't having a good time, he will lash out and become a threatening figure. An example of this is when Nick and one of his friends takes the kids to the beach. His friend takes one of his children and Nick takes the other two. We see that his friend is more relaxed and carefree, while Nick is more uptight and agitated to the point where he's literally dragging his children across the sand. And he's really forcing them to have a good time, when in reality it's very clear that the void of their mother not being there is so huge and it's so vast. And in a lot of ways, Nick's ability to want to create this good time for his children is really his way of hiding his guilt that he sent their mother away. A lot of this forceful energy that Nick gives off does continue once Mabel comes home. He gets all of his friends together so that they could have a homecoming for her, and he wants his homecoming to appear very nice and to appear very happy. In a lot of ways, we do see this version of happiness and normalcy that he wishes existed but can't fully carry out. And in a lot of ways, that is what the ending of this film represents. Once the guests leave, Mabel and Nick tuck the kids in, and Mabel lays down with each of them. And it's honestly my favorite scene in the film. She lays down with each one of her kids, and they let her know how much they love her and how accepting of her that they are in ways that Nick just won't be. And Nick reminds the kids that he loves them and he loves Mabel and that there's nothing to worry about and that tomorrow will be better. And it's this promising of maintaining that image of stability for his children, but he knows he can't really follow this all the way through into fruition because of the way that Mabel thinks and the way that Mabel feels. She is a very unpredictable presence in his life. But the kids don't see it that way. They just see it as, oh, she's my mom and I'm happy to have her and I'm lucky to have such a nice, kind, energetic presence in my life. And I think in a lot of ways for Nick, it's this loss of not being able to feel normal and not being able to feel stable. And it's all about what he wishes they could have had as a family. Next up we have Opening Night. 
This movie was written and directed by John Cassavetes and is about Myrtle Gordon, played by Jenna Rowlings, a renowned actress who teeters on the edge of a breakdown as she counts down the days towards a big Broadway opening. The themes of this movie are performance, reality, aging, and muse. According to the article, Opening Night, The Play's The Thing, written by Dennis Lim for the current magazine for the Criterion Channel, the article states, In rehearsal and performance to the horror of cast and crew, Myrtle becomes visually incapable of sticking to the script or even remaining in character. It's an ingenuously conceived, astonishingly acted part that encapsulates Cassavetes' assumptions about the function of performance and the value of theatrically and social interaction. His films are not so much about acting as the harrowing, hilarious inability to act. They call attention to the theater of everyday life by setting the cracks in the proscenium by privileging the nakedly revealing or widely obfuscating occasions when performance fails, when the script no longer applies, leaving the stranded actors to break out of character, overcompensate in outsized ways, make it up on the spot. This quote leads us into our first theme of performance. When we think of the word proscenium, we think of the part of the theater stage that's in front of the curtain. Therefore, audiences never really know what goes on behind the curtain. And that's a huge part of performing in theater. Those performances are really only a mirror into what we see in front of us without having any indication of what goes on backstage. The beauty of live theater is that actors constantly have to be on their feet. They constantly have to stay consistent in being in that present moment. And because of this, there's a lot of questions surrounding what do actors have to do in order to become their characters, and how does the outside affect the inside and vice versa. In Myrtle's case, her performances shift on stage every night depending on what is going on behind the scenes. For one example in particular, she is constantly haunted by a tragic incident that happened with one of her fans. And she uses a lot of that tragedy as a means of creating a different version of her character. How a lot of her characters behave on stage is a constant response to what goes on backstage, which reflects the idea of a performance breakdown. It's this ability to let go of this idea of performance ego and obsession and becoming consumed by perfectionism when creating a character in order to use whatever she feels presently to move her performance along. Many of these feelings that she uses do change over time. I think it also goes back to a lot of what society feels in just everyday life. We never have one emotion that follows us throughout the day. We experience many different emotions at a time, especially within the course of a day. You can go from feeling happy to angry to sad. And Myrtle uses all of those emotions to fuel wherever her character goes in the scene. What I love and appreciate most about this film is the way that Cassavetes was able to bring theater and film together. Oftentimes, you'll hear many actors say that they prefer doing theater over film because in theater you get a more immediate response. And in film, oftentimes, as an actor, you have to wait around on set until the lighting is just right, until the camera is in a certain angle. And in that case, film is very much a director's medium. 
due to those significant differences, it's very interesting to watch a film that's literally about a theater performance because you really get a glimpse into what goes on behind closed doors. When you're watching a play as an audience member, you only see what is in front of you on the stage. And this film gives you a glimpse into what some actors may have to experience or what can affect their performance in their personal life. And it's a really interesting take on actors and an audience being a part of a Broadway play through the perspective of film. The article continues to state, I seem to have lost the reality of the reality. Myrtle murmurs at one point, and it's no wonder. Instead of merely mapping correspondences between the play within the film and the surrounding scenario, opening night furiously entwines its fictions to the point of utter disorientation. Actors slip in and out of their roles without warning. Lines teeter between real and acted. Scenes change context in the blink of an eye. The echo chamber of actors playing actors renders almost every utterance layered and ambiguous. This quote leads us into the theme of reality. When you're performing in theater or in film or in any kind of performance scenario, the audience always has to believe the context of the scene. And theater in particular, because it's strictly an actor's medium in a lot of ways, is a presented reality that is easy to believe. The audience doesn't really know any different. It's very easy to sit and watch a play and watch a musical and believe that that is what is really happening in the given story. Myrtle and her co-stars are the only people living in a different reality, and it's the reality of what goes on behind the scenes, because whatever happens behind the scenes is completely different from what audiences are able to see on stage or in front of the camera. Myrtle's relationship with her co-star Maurice is another really important aspect of this film. Their relationship on stage is a shadow of what they experience together personally. Myrtle uses many of her personal experiences to fuel the chemistry between her and her co-stars. And this often creates many different blurred lines between believing our quote-unquote performances to be our true reality. And I think that this is what the basis of the film is as a whole. This movie does a really interesting job of reflecting a theater performance through the lens of a camera, like I had mentioned earlier. And it's this idea of how theater and film are often seen as very separate mediums. And Cassavetes brings both theater and film together to show the power of acting. I think that this film also does a really great job of showing that acting doesn't have to strictly be associated with one or the other. Acting is acting. Doesn't really matter if it's done in theater or film, you're still portraying a character and you're still feeling some kind of emotion that's relevant to a story. And Cassavetes showcases that brilliantly by simply telling the audience that these are actors playing actors. Jenna Rowlings plays Myrtle, and John Cassavetes plays Maurice. And these are the actors in the film, but then we see Myrtle and Maurice playing different actors on stage. So it's a presentation of what it means to really be an actor in every single case of the word. The article continues to state, Thus goaded to new heights of unprofessionalism, 
Myrtle rebels for the duration of the play's New Haven tryouts. She protests that she has nothing in common with her character Virginia, all the while fearing the exact opposite is true. Identifying with Virginia, the creation of the imperious playwright Sarah Good, who's several decades her senior, would be an admission of defeat too crushing to imagine. She isn't ready to be convincing as an older woman, and she bristles at having to portray Virginia as written. I'm looking for a way to play this part where age doesn't make any difference, she announces, an aspiration that, like those of so many other Cassavetti's protagonists, is at once crazy, pathetic, and heroic. This quote leads us into the theme of aging. Myrtle's response to aging itself does begin to create an inability to act. She begins to have trouble sticking to a script and ends up going off spontaneously. And her co-stars have to go along with this act because in theater you can't cut and redo the scene. You have to be able to think on your feet and improvise and go with whatever happens in the given scene. With that being said, it also goes back to what we discussed earlier about going with what is planned versus relying on story structure. She is not going by a rule book. She is relying on the structure that is given to her to be able to create something new within the scene. In a lot of ways, Myrtle also feels that getting older is a limiting aspect of being a performer. And it's those boundaries of exploration, especially when it comes to characterization, because those boundaries are not always wide, especially when it comes to histories of female parts, because there's a lot of talk around Hollywood, especially the older you get as a woman, the narrower your parts are as an actress, because there aren't a lot of good parts out there written for older actresses. It also goes back to the stereotypical concept of the older you get, the worse parts you get. And oftentimes it's harder to identify or empathize with their characters as an actor in that sense. An example of this in the film is when Myrtle goes to Maurice's apartment and tells him, let's dump it upside down and see if we can't find something human in it. This is such a powerful line in the film because it's clear that Cassavetes is making his own commentary on the power of films and how they reflect all of what is human and all of what is vulnerable. And those are what stories are supposed to do. If you have a good story, that story will be able to change your mind or make you think differently or have the power to really inspire you and ignite something in you. And those are the kinds of stories that Myrtle wants to tell and those are the kind of powerful parts she wants to take on. Muse is another really important theme in this film. When we think of the word muse, we think of a person or personified force who is the source of inspiration for a creative artist. And in this case, experience is the muse that Myrtle uses throughout the film. By the end of the play, she leans into the experience of existing in the moment rather than following what is strictly written on the page. And in a lot of ways, she's learning to make no distinction between life and art. It's easier to blend the two together when so much of what you experience can benefit your art. And that's exactly what Myrtle does. She stays true to that aspect of how many actors work. By being able to bring up some kind of personal connection to your characters, you're able to really feel in both spaces in a very deep, vulnerable way. 
And that's a huge part of what the ending of the film represents. Myrtle and Maurice end up going off script, but their performances never falter. We never see any flatness or blandness in how they present themselves. Their characters are still very charismatic, and they still go with whatever is put in front of them in a very playful kind of bantering way. And in that case, they do find a way to stay true to the personalities of their characters by commenting on whatever goes on in their personal lives and character and using what has happened in their personal lives to really fuel the scene. And it's really all about finding meaning and making art that is truly believable by leaning into existence and experience. Now moving on to some fun facts. For a woman under the influence, John Cassavetes could not find a distributor for the film after completion and was at one point literally carrying the reels under his arm from one theater to another in hopes of getting one to play his movie. Finally, Martin Scorsese, who had recently become critically acclaimed following his film Mean Streets, happened to be a huge fan of Cassavetes' work and threatened to pull his film Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore from a major New York film festival unless they accepted this film. Cassavetes initially wrote the film as a play, but wife Jenna Rowlings talked him out of it, stating the role would be far too harrowing and exhausting to play night after night. This film was selected into the National Film Registry in 1990 for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. In an interview from 2004 with Falk and Rollins, they state that there was no rehearsals outside of the table read and they weren't allowed to talk to each other about their characters. They agreed that with Cassavetes, you never know what was going to happen until you got on camera. Falk reminisces over one of the scenes shot in the movie and how immediately before the first take, Cassavetes runs over to him and forces a blue hat onto his head. This ends up being the iconic worker's hat Nick ends up wearing in a few scenes. Falk says that the last minute addition of this hat added to his performance. Similarly, Falk points out that with Cassavetes, sometimes you would be shooting and you wouldn't even know it. One example of this was in the scene where the doctor tries to give Mabel the sedative. He says that he didn't know they had begun shooting when Mabel delivered her first line. According to Falk, this allowed a more genuine shock to come from Nick. For opening night, in a 1978 television interview, Cassavetes said that this was the best film he had anything to do with. Peter Fox, Seymour Cassell, and Peter Bogdanovich all make cameos in the opening night scene. Spanish filmmaker Pedro Almodovar recreates the accident scene in his 1999 film All About My Mother as the epicenter of the dramatic conflict. The film was screened out of competition at the Cannes Film Festival in 1992. Now moving on to some movie recommendations. First up we have The Grand Budapest Hotel. This was my first deep dive into Wes Anderson's filmography, and I was pleasantly surprised. I loved the colors. I loved the cast. I thought the characters were so funny and charming, and there was such a great wit and a great beauty to the film that I really, really appreciated. Next up, we have the new film that Ron Howard directed called 13 Lives. This was a movie about the true story of the group of boys that got trapped in a cave in Thailand. And there's also a Nat Geo documentary about them that I have not seen. But I thought that Ron Howard did a really great job with this film. I know the cast did a lot of the stunts themselves as far as going underwater and doing a lot of the scuba diving and 
really challenging themselves to really learn about the people that they were playing, which was really great to see. And I thought that it was so ambitious of Ron Howard to be able to direct a film like this because there's a lot of intensity behind the story. And it's often, I feel, a lot of times a bit more difficult to maybe make a film that's based on a true story because you really want to respect the people involved and you want to respect what they went through. And I think that Ron Howard did a really great job of capturing a lot of the intensity of the situation itself. Next up, we have Jordan Peele's new film, Nope. I think that Jordan Peele is one of those directors that never really disappoints. He's always one that puts his stories into the centerfolds and really comes into his own and makes it really thrilling and exciting for the audience. And the sound effects in this film, the cast, the production design, the costumes, they all flowed incredibly well and just really made the film come to life in a really dramatic, drastic way. Last but not least, we have Sophia Loren and Marcello Mastroianni in the 1970s film Sunflower. This movie was a really great film to watch. I always love watching movies with Sophia Loren and Marcello Mastroianni because I think they are two of the best Italian actors ever. And their chemistry in this film was so undeniable. And it was so amazing being able to see them play such vulnerable characters who have gone through these hardships and how they were able to really come back together and find solace within each other's company. As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Keep an eye out for our next episode featuring the incredible work of Tamara Jenkins.